As we come now to the preaching of God's word and the reading of the passage from where it will come, I would invite you to turn to Mark and the sixth chapter. Mark and the sixth chapter. Today we're going to be spending some time with Jesus in his school of compassion. Now first though, we must consider how Jesus found himself there because at least for human terms, this was a rather unplanned training session, a situation that came upon Jesus and his disciples unexpectedly. And it's the event that the church has come to know as the feeding of the 5,000, the only miracle that is recorded in all four of our Gospels, and so probably bears some significance in that regard. It's actually the feeding of about eight to 10,000, as you probably well know, because Matthew says it was a feeding of 5,000 men besides women and children. And I'll be drawing from all four accounts of the event as recorded by the Gospel writers, but I want to read, and we'll probably spend most of that time from our passage in Mark, from the account in Mark. Mark is one of only uh, two of the uh, Gospel writers, Mark and Luke, who, who explain the context uh, and the reason why uh, Jesus found himself uh, in this in this situation with this crowd, Matthew and and John don't, and and Mark specifically gives the reason for why Jesus and the disciples got in their boat to try to find a secluded place, but instead find this crowd, and that's important context for uh, some of what I want to say this morning. And so I've chosen to read from Mark's from Mark's account. We'll read chapter 6, verses 7 to 14, and then we'll jump over to verse 27 to 44. The intervening text has to do with Herod wrestling with who Jesus is and the account of Herod having John the Baptist executed, and that does not play a part in the message this morning. So I'll read from verses 7 to 14, and then from 27 to 44. Hear now God's word. And he, that is Jesus, called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Also he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent, and they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known, And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. And then to verse 27, Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his, that is John the Baptist's head, to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And that's referring back to him sending them out two by two on their missionary 
journeys. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed, and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish, he divided them among all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. That's where we'll end our reading of the passage this morning. Now when we look back to verse 34, we see that Jesus and his disciples find themselves face to face with a huge and a growing crowd upon, the, upon arriving at a place that they expected to be deserted, a place that they were hoping would be secluded. And Mark tells us, as I said, why they were seeking such a place. In verses 30 to 32, we read, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. And consistent with that, Luke says in chapter 9 in his account, in verse 10, And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And so we see that Jesus crossed a portion of the Sea of Galilee in order to be in a deserted place with his disciples where they could be alone. But what happens? What do they actually experience when they arrive? What do they see? The place is no longer deserted, but rather it is full of people, a crowd that probably stretched as far as the eye could see. 5,000 men plus women and children. Perhaps not 5,000 men immediately, but certainly a large and growing crowd. As Mark says, the people, once they realized where Jesus was going, many of them ran ahead of him and got there ahead of him. In Luke and Matthew, we read that the people followed Jesus. Now, that's not an inconsistency. That's not evidence of errors in Scripture. But, but think about this. You have a crowd of eight to 10,000 people, men 
women and children. The young men, those with agility, will have run ahead of them. They will have been able to run ahead of Jesus and the disciples and get there ahead of them. But then you've got, you've got the mothers carrying their newborn children on their backs or on their fronts. So you've got mothers and fathers bringing their toddlers along, walking alongside them. And they're coming from, as the passage says, from different cities. And so they're coming from different distances. And so you will have had people that got there ahead of Jesus. And when he and the disciples arrived there, there will, be, will, will have been many others that were continuing to gather, to continue to come from a distance. Jesus and the disciples got out of the boat and saw this crowd that was fast becoming a huge crowd as far as the eye could see. So what did Jesus do? Well, of course, as you know, he jumped back into the boat and he told the disciples, Andrew, untie the boat again. James, Peter, push it back into the water. We have to get out of here. Is that what Jesus did? No, we know that's not what he did. That might be what you would have done or what I would have done when we were looking for a quiet place, a place to rest, a place to regroup. We might have wanted to do that and go down to the next beach and find another place, but not Jesus. Jesus was not angry. He was not overwhelmed. He was not discouraged at this presence of this crowd interfering with his planned rest and time away with his disciples. How did he respond? Well, he had compassion. He had compassion on the crowd. He was moved with compassion. Why? Well, Mark uniquely says, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Luke says that Jesus welcomed the people. He welcomed the crowd. Other ways of translating that word welcomed are he, he received them. He accepted them. He didn't accept them grudgingly, but the word is the idea of he accepted them gladly. He embraced them. Jesus wanted time to, to be alone with his disciples, and nevertheless, when he saw this huge crowd of people seeking him, he had compassion on them. And he welcomed them gladly. This was a crowd of desperate, demanding, needy, earnest people who were seeking out Jesus, who wanted to hear him, who wanted to be, will, to, to be ministered to by, by him, who, who wanted some of them healing from him, who were looking for a teacher, a leader, a savior, somebody different from these oppressive religious leaders who they had governing them and overseeing them in their day. And so Jesus, with the compassion that he had on this crowd, he sets aside his other plans with his disciples and he begins to minister to these people. And it's an active and energetic ministry all day long. He's, he's teaching and healing, delivering and saving. Teaching and healing, delivering and saving. Matthew says that he was healing them. Mark says he was teaching them many things. Luke says that he was teaching them about the kingdom of God and healing those who needed healing. Teaching and healing, delivering and saving on his feet all day long, moving among these people, giving them his full and undivided attention. 
And while Jesus was ministering, his disciples were not sitting around on the beach or talking politics or about talking about the stock market and just doing their own thing. Jesus, as was his practice, would have had these disciples engaged in that ministry, involved in that ministry with them. These are disciples who had just come back from some missionary journeys that Jesus had sent them on alone. Two by two, so they were together, but they were, they were without Jesus. This was testing their faith, expanding their development as leaders for God's church, as apostles. He was sending them out to minister without him. And they had come back. And they were, as you read, we read in our passage and in Luke, they were excited to talk to Jesus about what they had experienced, what they had taught, the response of the people. And perhaps also wanted to talk to him about some of the the conflict they may have engaged in. Because as we read in our passage, Jesus warned them that if there was conflict, that they were to shake the dust off their feet at those houses where the people did not receive them. And so these disciples were no doubt exhausted from these missionary journeys missionary journeys they were part of. They wanted to talk to Jesus, and that's why Jesus wanted to gather together with them alone in a form of rest, but debriefing them and talking with them about their ministry. And so they were exhausted, but also in another way, they were primed for ministry because they just come off the mission field in different communities around the area ministering. And so what better form of debriefing could Jesus have had than to actually have them actively ministering before him and he could watch the way they ministered, he could observe the way they served the way they responded to him, whether they were resistant to all of a sudden this additional ministry when they were exhausted or whether they were teachable and enthusiastic and desiring to serve their Lord. And so Jesus, again, would have been fully engaged and fully attentive to the ministry before him, primarily ministering to the crowds, but also ministering to his disciples. This was an experience of pouring his life once again into others, teaching them about the kingdom of God and about himself as the Messiah, the promised Messiah, healing those who were sick, setting people free from their slavery to sin, engaged in spiritual warfare. Now surely, as the day was coming to an end, as evening was coming, Jesus would have been looking forward to that time when he could dismiss this crowd, dismiss the people, send them home, and finally have this moment to catch his breath, to rest, and maybe have that one-on-twelve time with his disciples that he was wanting when he crossed the Sea of Galilee. Well, apparently not. Shortly before nightfall, Jesus' disciples encouraged him to do that, did they not? They certainly would have preferred that option. And ordinarily, it may well have been the most charitable option because other people do not have the capacity to multiply bread and fish the way the Lord Jesus did. But Jesus had not yet finished serving. He still had more compassion to hand out to the people. And this was not a simple management task. It's one thing, and not not a lesser thing, but it's one thing to perform the miracle, to produce the food that the people needed, but but how to get it to distribute it to them, to eight 
to 10,000 of them. And he was going to get the disciples to help him with this. They weren't the ones who were miraculously providing the food, but they were the ones that were going to have to distribute it at the end of the day when they were exhausted and taxed of their energy and strength. And yet God in Christ was calling them to continue to step up and serve sacrificially the people. The only management detail we're given, and that's in Mark and Luke, is, is that the seating arrangements, seating ranks in groups of 50 and groups of 100. I don't know how that would have facilitated the distribution of the food, but, but clearly it would have done. But nevertheless, I'm sure the disciples were not in their happy place when Jesus told them that he wanted them to all of a sudden become an impromptu catering service to this huge crowd. When I first was preparing a message on, on this event, and it was, it was a message from Matthew's account of the passage, I was in seminary and among several male seminary students who were trying to figure out how to lay out tw- tables to feed only 40 people at an annual dinner prepared by the evangelism class. And to prepare this, this dinner for, for only 40 people, we, we tried laying out the tables in three or four different configurations to see which one would work best. We even considered whether to serve the guests or to have them come up buffet style. And all this for only 40 people. Those of you here who who may have experience and expertise in event planning and catering, I don't know whether you would prefer three minutes or three weeks to prepare to cater an event for eight to 10,000 people. And these were not just well-disciplined, all-rested, focused people. This is at the end of the day. This is when people are tired. This is where children are crying around the feet of their mothers and fathers, crying because they're hungry, crying because they're tired. This idea to feed eight to 10,000 people at the end of the day as the sun is going down, or maybe had already gone down, was not the most practical idea that Jesus had ever thrust on his disciples, at least not from their perspective. But that's Jesus' compassion. Compassion's not always practical, is it? Compassion is not always realistic. And then the disciples had to, after this, had to determine where to send the extras. Jesus didn't just provide food to feed the eight to 10,000, but there was 12 baskets of leftovers. And so the disciples were then responsible most likely to find out where the, where the local synagogue or food bank was where they could provide this food where it could be distributed to others who had, who had need. And so in this account we see the disciples participating in Jesus' school of compassion. Jesus doesn't just tell his disciples to be compassionate. He shows them how to be compassionate. In this case the specifics are that he healed people, he taught them of his kingdom, and he fed them. But what are some of the, the details around the, these provisions and expressions of compassion? How did Jesus express his compassion through this ministry? As we sit with the disciples in Jesus' school of compassion, what can we learn this morning? No doubt there are many things that we can learn from this account in terms of Jesus' compassion and his example. But I want to highlight four particular items, four particular lessons that we can learn. 
The first one is that Jesus ministered to desperate people. Desperate people, sheep without a shepherd. These are people, some of them who are running to Jesus. People who are coming from everywhere. Some, some people had run to these cities and got the word out. And immediately people were flocking to come to Jesus. Men, women, children, families. All ages, entire families. And as we know from when Jesus fed them, they didn't come with food. They didn't uh, think about how long they might be there with Jesus. And we don't have any indication, though some may have left when they got their healing, but we don't have any indication that people had a tendency to leave those that wanted healing once they got their healing. It seemed like people were sticking around, wanting to be around and hear from Jesus and be in the presence of Jesus. These were desperate people. Sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus understood what it meant to be sheep without a shepherd in that day. In John's account, in chapter 5, immediately preceding the account of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is, John talks about Jesus being in another altercation, one of his many altercations with the religious leaders of his day. They were wanting to kill him because he was making himself out to be one with the Father by calling him his Father. Uh, well, no kidding, because he was one with his Father, but they did not want to accept that fact. They did not want to bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, so they wanted to kill him. And this is just one of many examples of how they had become wayward and abandoned the true Old Testament religion, the true religion of God, and they had created their own religion with their own trappings added, added to God's law, throwing out the parts of God's law they didn't like. They were essentially advocating a new religion. They were not faithful ministers of the true Old Testament Christianity as it were. And so these people were leading people astray. They were leading them into bondage. You know, the many times Jesus confronted them over the Sabbath day because of all their enslaving enslaving traditions around the Sabbath day, which made it something completely different from the liberating truth that God and liberating law that God had given his people. These were desperate people in need of leadership in lead of a true rabbi in need of a true savior and so Jesus recognized this and he embraced this crowd with his healing and with his message and so that's a challenge to us is do we minister to desperate people do you minister to desperate people desperate people are often awkward and uncomfortable to minister to, aren't they? They, they can often be stifling, intimidating, clingy type people, people who, who don't know when to stop when you offer them help perhaps and that's never enough and they, and they come back looking for more and they come back looking for more and they come back looking for more. We can experience this sometimes in terms of counseling, in terms of charitable work, in terms of people who express financial need. And we often have to, or feel the need to set up boundaries when we're ministering to people. Perhaps in humanitarian ministry, we might say, well, you never give out your phone number because you know that somebody is going to start calling and they don't know the right time or the wrong time to call and they will invade your personal space that way. Other times, you know, we, uh, we say, well, if we're, if we're ministering formally or professionally, well, don't minister after a certain time. I turn my phone off or I lock my door at this time and that's it. Well, we need to set personal boundaries often 
because of the nature of our limitations as human beings and because of our responsibilities. But we need to be very careful that when we set limitations, that we do so with caution, with humility, always having a heart, seeking to cultivate the heart of compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ, who ultimately did not set, ultimately was willing to serve desperate people and allow these people to spend, spend this day with them, close to him, clinging to him, crying out to him, seeking him for what they needed. And we need to be open to those people in our lives who need that help and to not short-circuit our opportunities to, to show compassion and minister Christ to other people simply because we need our personal space. Similar to this, a second lesson to learn is that Jesus in his ministry of compassion modeled sacrifice. He served sacrificially. He turned away from his initial expectations for how he was going to spend that day and he required his disciples to do the same. You and I know that when we hold our expectations too tightly and they become demands instead of desires, when somebody runs up against our expectations. It's easy to get mad. It's easy to get angry and to get frustrated, especially at home, husbands and wives and families, children. You know, we, we have an expectation of a spouse, have an expectation perhaps in the church of somebody, and they let us down. It's easy to become angry. It's easy to develop resentment when our expectations are not met. But Jesus does not get angry when his expectation of ministering in a place of rest with his disciples aren't met. Rather, he shows compassion. He's moved with compassion. And he doesn't just spend a few hours with them or a few minutes. He doesn't just get the healings out of the way and then say, let's go, let's go find another place. But he insists on ministering to this crowd all day, healing those that needed healing and teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then even extending into the day. He didn't need to, but extending his compassion by feeding them. Are we sacrificial in the way we serve others? Or do we draw limits and do we, do we draw lines before we should? Do we need to ask the Lord to be fostering compassion in our hearts and in our lives to those around us who need to see the love of Christ at work in our lives, those who are also like sheep without a shepherd. People are being buffeted in this world. You and I may be buffeted in one way or another in many ways in this world. How much more those who don't know Christ and don't have a Savior to turn to? We experience and we're seeing increased oppression by our civil magistrates of every level. We, we, see, we see religious leaders that make it difficult to see Christ in our worship and in our gathering as his people we see we see the oppression of wickedness and perversion everywhere we look we have to walk around almost with our eyes permanently closed in order to not see the evil around us on tv on our computers on billboards everywhere we turn there's oppression there's stifling oppression all around us not to mention all the struggles that we have with our own sin and the oppressive weight of sin and the burdens that come to us from our own hearts. But we need to be there to minister with compassion to those in our midst who particularly need compassion. 
And then thirdly, Jesus serves this crowd indiscriminately. Now what do I mean by that? Well, consider what we know of the the people's motivations here. John wrote that a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. Now, if you read just John, you might think, well, okay, well, that means that they all wanted healing. They were coming because they they had seen his signs that he he healed people. But we read in Luke, as I have read earlier, that he healed those who wanted healing healing. He healed those who needed healing. So not everyone who came needed personal healing, even though they were coming because they had heard that he was one who performed signs on those who were diseased. See, we know that Jesus didn't just heal people, but the Gospels also tell us that he taught. And we, we read elsewhere in the, in the scriptures, I believe it's in Mark, just previous to that, we read how the people saw that Jesus was one who taught with authority. He was one who taught truth with authority that they did not see in the Pharisees, in the scribes, in the priests, in the religious leaders that demanded their submission and their obedience. And so Jesus was unique. Jesus was distinct. And and along with his teaching came these miracles of healing, resurrecting the dead, delivering demons. So people did not have to need personal healing in order to want to know more of who this Jesus was. Who was this man? Who was this teacher? Is he somebody who I should follow? Somebody who I can trust? Somebody who should be my rabbi, my savior? And so the people may well have been coming with different motivations, wondering about how Jesus could be one who could lead them and who they would be willing to follow. We actually see later in John, he says that Jesus moved away from there after the miracle of feeding the 5,000 quickly because some of them wanted to take him by force and make him their king. So there were people in that crowd who were looking for a leader, whether a civil leader to help them overthrow the Romans or a religious leader who would give them a message of salvation, of hope, of faith, rather than the stifling oppression and misery that they were under with the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And so he ministered to them indiscriminately, regardless of their motivations. He did not seek to find out which ones were true believers or which ones had heard enough of his teaching about the gospel to to, to make a determined consideration of whether they would bow their knee to him. He, He didn't question them before he ministered to them. He ministered to them indiscriminately regardless of their motivations he was there to show them compassion as those who are being led astray and deceived and in need of a savior and we too need to make sure that we are also willing to minister to people indiscriminately that we're willing to minister to people and not be instinctively judgmental or cynical or harsh in how we think about people and their motives for why they're looking for help. We need to be ready to open our arms and our hearts to those who need help and who are looking for a savior. Now there is a place for 
discerning and discriminatory ministry to people. We see that in the account of Jesus sending forth his apostle disciples into the mission field. Prior to that, he tells them that if people are not willing to accept them, that they are to shake their du- the, the dust off their feet at the entry to their homes. And then we see in John chapter 6 later, where Jesus builds on this event of the feeding of the 5,000 and his teaching about being the bread of life. And he even says that those who believe in him must eat his body and drink his blood. We read after that that some people found that teaching too hard. And so at that time, they walked away. And so there is a place for discriminating ministry, for a clear, sharp message that calls people to make a decisive decision for Christ, to bow their knee to him, to repent, to confess their sin and confess Christ as their Lord and Savior. But there are also many places, many places for tender, compassionate ministry to those of broken heart, broken spirit, and broken body. Places where we might become weary ministering. Places where we might be tempted to write off a person because of the lack of progress we want to see. But nevertheless, places where God's compassion may well break through if we persevere in sacrificial compassion and the power and example of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't use excuses to perhaps short-circuit this ministry because we don't think that we're seeing the kinds of results that we want to see before extending ourselves and extending our compassion any further. As I was preparing this message, I happened to be, for other reasons, looking over looking over some of my archives in my computer, and I found this account that I had saved from a synod sermon that a retired Reformed Presbyterian pastor from the denomination that I've been a member of for many years, but a retired Reformed Presbyterian pastor had mentioned in a sermon that he had preached to the synod, the body of the national body of elders and pastors of the denomination. This is what he said. The first time I had an opportunity to minister to someone suffering in my congregation, I failed badly. I had been in the congregation less than a month when a 17-year-old boy asked if he could see me in private. I set up a time in my office and was thinking, what will this be about? Has he gotten a girl pregnant? Worse? When he came and told me his problem, I must have smiled with relief. He had fallen for a girl at a church conference and wasn't sure how she felt. I gave him advice, but he claimed years later that I did not treat it seriously and he was in misery. He never came back to church and I didn't know why, even though I asked. When he was 40 years old, that's four zero, he finally told me he didn't come back because I had been no comfort when he was suffering. We can be judgmental, cynical, and dismissive when we should be compassionate in big and small situations. It's usually best to err on the side of compassion. And the fourth lesson that I want us to take away from this event of Jesus healing the 5,000, the 8 to 10,000, is that Jesus called the people to himself. They were seeking him. And he called them to himself. He proved to be what they needed. He was the one who had the gift of healing. He was the one who had the words of eternal life. He was the one who himself was 
the eternal life that they needed. We know from the beginning of his ministry on this earth, he said that he came to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God and salvation through himself as the promised Messiah. And Jesus was sacrificially compassionate. He cared for them, and they could see that, and they, during this ministry, were attracted to him. Jesus called them to himself. He was the one they needed for salvation and for all things they stand in, stood in need of. And we also are to call people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our compassion is not true compassion if we're not ultimately calling people to the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, for their reconciliation with God, for his gift of eternal life, for all that they stand in need of. We're not being truly compassionate unless we are also following Christ's example and calling people to himself. And that means, therefore, that you yourself must already be one who has accepted that call to submit to Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, as the one from whom all true compassion comes. If you are not one who has bowed your knee to Christ, how can you point others to him as their source of compassion? And so, having spent a few minutes with Jesus and his disciples this morning in in his school of compassion, you'll hopefully remember the examples that he gives us to follow, but you must also experience his compassion for you. And no doubt you need to. You have areas, I have areas, where we need to be touched and transformed by the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this Lord Jesus who who poured out his compassion on this crowd, this Lord Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever is the one that we can turn to for compassion when we need it. This Jesus who showed compassion to the men, women, and children in this crowd is also the God of compassion to you. He did not run away from these desperate, needy people feeling that their problems were too much for him. And your problems are not too much for him today either. He did not angrily dismiss these needy, broken, and desperate people. And he's not angry at you or weary over you for bringing your troubles and your brokenness to him day after day, week after week, year after year. Jesus welcomed this crowd, and Jesus welcomes you to come before him and lay your burdens at his feet because he cares for you, every man, woman, and child in this congregation. Jesus loved and served, healed and helped these thousands of people. And he's here today inviting you to bring all your cares to him. Jesus did not run out of compassion for the crowd. And Jesus does not run out of compassion today either. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And as those who have found their rest in Christ, and as a disciple of Christ, as we've considered already this morning, you cannot simply embrace Jesus' compassion for yourself. Each of you has people in your life who need to be introduced to a God of compassion. We all do. Spouses in conflict, children estranged from their parents, widows and widowers and others who have lost loved ones and struggling with loneliness, people staring poverty in the face, perhaps through an unexpected tragedy, 
perhaps due to their own chronic irresponsibility, the outcasts of your community. So many people, so many hardships that can be used to point people you know to a compassionate Savior. Who can you introduce to Jesus today? Let's pray.